If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I am your co-host, Brad Burke. I am a sports marketer in Chicago. Not with me today, right now, with me today, later, and by later, I mean long ago somehow. That's right. We're going like full tenant style on this episode is my co-host Gareth Hughes. As we've been talking about in our last few episodes, we are we are wrapping her up, man. We are putting stuff into boxes. We are labeling them for the movers. We are just closing down shop on Just Not Sports after five plus years, 200 or so guests, almost 200 interviews. Gotta love that more guest than episode ratio. Uh, big kudos from me to the person who did all those bookings over the years. Uh, also me. Anyway, as we're finagling some final interviews over uh, the next few weeks that we're going to roll out uh, in succession, we may sprinkle in some blasts from the past. Uh, Gareth and I were talking about some of our favorite interviews, especially the ones that we got to do together um, over the years. And and, and today, we're just going to go back and revisit two of them. The first one is a conversation we had with Mike Shore. If you don't know Mike Shore, he is a prolific creator of television. You know, he created Parks and Rec. He created The Good Place. He's got his fingerprints in all sorts of other, uh, you know, really interesting properties, interesting projects over the years. And and Gareth and I were really lucky to to snag him on a topic that he was very passionate to talk about. Mike, as he says in the interview, got banned by his wife from talking about Robert Caro's The Power Broker, which is arguably one of the most important nonfiction books ever. It's a book where Gareth and I saw Mike tweeting under the, his handle, Ken Tremendous, years ago that The Power Broker was the best nonfiction book of all time. And we were like, hey, if, 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 <laughs> if, if Mike Shore likes this book, we should check it out. And boy, did we, because it's like 1,200, 1,300 pages about Robert Moses and the downfall of New York due to the way that he did the city's infrastructure, parks, transportation, and other ruinous systems. Candidly, we were shocked that Mike, in the middle of um, you know working on every little thing that he was working on, agreed to come on our podcast, predominantly because I don't think he was allowed to talk about the book anywhere else. He, you know, he talks in the interview about how his wife was like, you won't shut up about this book. You, can, you ruined parties talking about this book. We gave him the full green light here. We were like, hey, it's it's the fourth quarter. Uh, Jamal Crawford, get into the game and just light light up the scoreboard with as many shots as you can. So anyway, one of our uh, most cherished interviews for sure, because Gareth and I had this crazy snake eating its tail uh, relationship to this, where we see Mike Shore talking on Twitter about the power broker. We agreed to this months long <laughs> uh, process of reading this book together and talking about it. And then years later, get him on the podcast and, and get to break it all down. Then another equally special interview for the two of us. The first time that Gareth and I ever taped in the same room together. 
Uh, and that was with Judy Batista, great NFL reporter. You know her work over the years, NFL.com, other places. Uh, we broke down her love of Van Halen, <laughs> and it was a blast. And there's an interesting backstory to this one, too. We were in New York. I was in New York for BlazerCon, which was the Men in Blazers uh, soccer, I don't know what you'd call it, like soccer Comic-Con, soccer theme park, whatever you want to call it. It was just like this huge celebration of soccer and pie and Guinness. And we were all going to tape with Judy uh, you know, while I was out in New York. And for whatever reason, we had to cancel. I'm, I'm really struggling to remember why did we have to cancel. Otherwise, she would have been like episode four of Just Not Sports. Instead, we kicked the can down the road. Something came up. Uh, it might have been like a problem with our production thing at the time. And we said, all right, Judy, we're going to get back to you. So we waited until the next time I was actually in New York. And Gareth and I got her in a room. We had a bunch of really great production folks that he works with out there uh, set us up. And we sat down and just taped with a guest in the room. <laughs> up until then, you know, we were calling people on the phone. Uh, Gareth was always remote. You know, he joined in episode four, I think. And he was, if you listen to those early episodes, I mean, he was sometimes on the phone, sometimes in like an airport. The mics are always hit or miss. There was It was very much patchwork production, <laughs> like so many other podcasts of that era. But it was so much fun. And it's an interview that really sticks out, not just because we were all together, but because Judy was so passionate about Van Halen. And it was such a fun topic to break down, talking about her connection to the music, the different eras of the band. And I've always uh, you know, had that up high on my list of, of, of fun interview experiences. So we're going to roll out with a replay of both those interviews. Mike Shore on The Power Broker, Judy Batista on Van Halen. Hope you enjoy it. We, we had a lot of fun with these. We might roll out a couple more best ofs. We continue to knock on the doors and windows and <laughs> cars and alleyways, wherever, of people that we want to get back on the show. Just taped with Alexi Lawless recently. That's right. He's coming back on to talk about music. Stay tuned for that. And... Look, thanks for hanging with us. A couple more things on the way as we close down shop. And thank you for all the responses we've been getting. Lots of people reached out on Twitter, email, just saying, hey, uh, you know, hope, you know, hope Gareth's doing well. Hope you guys are doing well. And congrats on the run, uh, which, you know, we always appreciate. So enjoy me and Gareth back then talking to you now or then or in the future because it hasn't started yet. But yeah. Tenant. <laughs> Tenant. I'm over here. Get on the microphone and just rip the track. Who the hell is Shack Attack? You better read the paper. Treat me like Bismarcky. You better catch the vapor. I got mad props, so why would you exploit? Punch you in your face like that kid from Detroit. Really, though, you better ask him. October 27th, 2011. Oliver Stone signs on to direct the film for The Power Broker. You know, we see you tweet that the power broker is the greatest nonfiction book ever written. So he'd better not screw this up. So instantly, Gareth and I just said, we should definitely read the power broker and uh, and, and check out <laughs> if it's the best nonfiction book we did. So I just before we get started, I have to ask, what is it like to hear that you are essentially the Oprah's book club to two random dudes that you've never met? <laughs> I'm incredibly flattered. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> uh, I uh, I feel like Twitter in general 
is a radio station that no one is listening to. So you <laughs> <laughs> like, have a, uh, a uh, uh, any tweet cause any good to happen in the world is like a miracle. So thank you for that. Um, but I, you know, I feel like any time that I have ever recommended the power broker to anyone and that person has read the power broker, it's always gone well. So I, I'm pretty. I feel like it's a pretty safe recommendation to make to people because it, it never fails to have the desired effect, in my experience. And now that movie never got off the ground. And there's a lot we're going to cover in the book because it's 1,200 pages of just you know as thorough writing as anyone can imagine about um, about Robert Moses or anyone else. But the movie never got off the ground. Are you? Were you at some point really curious to see what Oliver Stone would have done with this? Or are you secretly sort of happy that you didn't have to sit through two hours of what could have been real nonsense? Two hours? You think there was two hours? <laughs> <laughs> I was Oliver Stone writing it. I mean, four and a half is uh, probably more likely. Um, yeah, I, I mean, obviously I'm curious. And like as a Beyond fan and let's say devotee, of that book, I would be fascinated to see what would happen. I think Oliver Stone has obviously, he's a little bit hit and miss in my opinion, but the subject matter of like power and corruption is sort of right up his alley. He's not a bad choice. It, it, in some way, it's very logical that he would want to take on that project. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, in all likelihood, any movie version of that book ends up letting you down in exactly the same way that almost all adaptations of books end up letting you down if you're a true fan. So I don't, I wouldn't say I'm like disappointed that it never happened. Um, but I would be curious to see it. I mean, it's certainly, I mean, to me, the reason that I feel like it's the most, like the best nonfiction book ever written is in part because the story is so cinematic. Like it's an incredibly dramatic and cinematic real true story the way that moses transforms from a sort of like you know champion of the working man in a very like he's like a champion of the working man who was the also the worst ivy league snob (laughs) (laughs) and and which is already fascinating and then as he learns like the details of essentially like how to how to work a corrupt system he becomes the ultimate elitist and that's like it's it's the actual story is so cinematic and incredible. I feel like there is a good version of the movie, or probably more to the point, a good version of a miniseries that spans mm-hmm. eight or ten episodes or something. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see it in the right hands. I would love to see it uh, dramatized. But good lord, I mean, I, I don't know how I don't know how you do that in one movie. It's one sort of even a long Oliver Stone version of a movie of that book is going to necessarily lose a lot of its incredible detail and nuance. And that would probably be kind of a bummer to watch. Yeah. Right. As, as you said, like it's got all the, he becomes like this almost like gnarled, deformed character in a Shakespearean sense by the end. Um, and to see it does have like such a classic arc to it. And in that way, look, coming off the election, I think everybody in America has become either a historian or an amateur historian. Um, it's 
It's impossible. I, I picked up the book this week in anticipation of this interview, and it's impossible to start reading it about like, boy, some of this stuff started so benignly, or you could hide so much chicanery in the most mundane bill writing language to just rewrite bonds and money and power and things like that. How do you look at this book as informing our present moment? I know it's a broad question, but it's impossible to avoid right now. No, it's incredibly, um, it's the, the sort of analogy or metaphor or whatever you want to call it is direct. Like Moses basically Mm. came to power because he realized through Al Smith that no one was paying attention, right? That's like the real lesson you take from that book Mm -hmm. is, you know, and granted Tammany Hall is like the most corrupt government ever, probably on a local (laughs) level, but at the same time, he realized like no one's paying attention. These people in the state assembly are rubber stamping any bill that comes along. The bills are hundreds of pages long. You can bury any language you want inside any bill and you can get away with it because no one reads the bills. And the the basic lesson of the book is like if you want a good democracy and you want to keep power out of the hands of a very small number of people, you have to pay attention. And all mm-hmm. of the stories that are coming out now about fake news on Facebook being shared millions of times and the kind of like the, the ease with which Different various groups of people, be they uh, American pranksters or like alt right meme generators or Russian <laughs> hackers or whatever, <laughs> the ease with which they manipulated the flow of information was astonishing. It was so easy. I mean, they, they it was child's play, and mm-hmm. the result is in some ways the same. Right? It's like the people who figure out that no one's paying attention and decide instead of like working hard to correct that systemic problem, decide to take advantage of it and manipulate it to their own ends. Those are the winners. Those people win every time. And so there's all of this kind of, there's like a, there is currently a national debate raging between the kind of beautiful and, and sort of idealistic vision of America delivered by the Obamas, which is when they go low, you go high. And the the counter uh, argument delivered by those alt-right meme generators and uh, Russian nationalists and um, <laughs> fake news writers, which is, oh, watch this. It's so fucking easy to make people do whatever you want them to do. <laughs> and who cares? Uh, and it's very scary because the it's not easy to find the cure. You know, it took... It took whatever, it took a bunch of wealthy Upper West Side uh, Manhattanites who didn't want Central Park to be privatized to mm-hmm. finally oust Moses. Uh, but he had been, he had had an unprecedented amount of power for 40 years and completely redrew the largest and most important American city in his own image to the extreme detriment of gigantic swaths of the city and massive numbers of poor people. And he was a racist and a lunatic and an insane elitist who thought that only people who went to Princeton, Harvard, or Yale should be allowed to make decisions for America. And he had 40 years of unchecked power simply because he could manipulate the system better than anybody else. And he didn't care at all about uh, what he destroyed in order to achieve his goals. So, like, 
you know, it's, <laughs> this is a frightening vision so of our like, present moment. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. I mean, it's it's incredibly it's incredibly apt. the 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 lessons from history are incredibly bright and clear and obvious. And my personal fear, having read that book and sort of had that book change my mindset about how power works in the country. Uh, are you know I couldn't be more terrified, frankly. <laughs> right, right, what right. Really happened. I mean, and the other thing was the other crazy parallel to me is that Moses realized that all he needed was the press. Right, it's like all he needed was uh, for the majority of the people in the city and the state who were uninformed. All he needed was to be sort of lionized as a man of the people. And once you're a man of the people, you can do whatever you want, even if you're screwing people over. Uh, and you can bring, maintain that mantle. And so he did. He built highways <laughs> to the water so that people could go swimming. And from that moment on, for 40 years, it was like, well, Moses can't be curious over. He's a man of the people. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a weird, like, feedback loop that the public gets trapped in where they have a certain set of beliefs based on the manipulations of the person in power, and then nothing that person does can undo them because they're still, they have that belief. So, yeah, I mean, it's remarkable. It's it's truly a remarkable parallel. And, you know, it, it's not just Trump. It's, there have been many people in many different countries who have sort of exercised the same kind of will and control that he did. And uh, and those people tend to it, they have a certain amount of inertia. Once they're in power, they tend to stay in power. That's what that's what's really scary to me. Yeah, I mean, the book, you know, Sorry pop- to darken your days. No, no, it's it's totally fine. And we have no illusions left, my friend. Uh now, the book kind of posits that Robert Moses had a lot to do with the fall of New York. And I, it was published in 1974 when the city had hit sort of its financial and, and cultural probably nadir as it just was kind of taken over by crime and, and um, corruption. That said, I keep waiting for like the revisionist history around Moses to really kind of kick into high gear. And I feel as though this book has held its message really well in, in the face of that. Do, do you feel as though Caro's work will, I guess, be, be remain the definitive portrait of Moses? Or do you fear that as New York prospers, we will look back on the nice monuments that he built and, and, and tend to shove away the, the, the really kind of wicked part of his history with the city? I can't imagine a more definitive book or story being written in part because, and Caro ran up against this in his Lyndon Johnson series, too, he so much of it is firsthand accounts and right. those people are all dead. You know, like there's no way to mm-hmm. recreate the research that he did for either uh, Moses or Lyndon Johnson, because you know, the, the firsthand witnesses are gone. The interview, the interviews, those interviews are not available to other people. I do think that he does for all of his, um, you know, uh, laying bare of Moses's fault. I feel like there is a way in which, and this is part of why I love the book so much, he doesn't try to gloss over the amazing things that Moses did, especially in the early days of the Depression, when FDR basically says, you know, uh, we're doing this, you know, we need to put the country to work, so anyone who has any ideas for public works projects, come see us. And the day one, in my memory of the book, it's like day one of that situation, Moses shows up with like a thousand plans. <laughs> like, just we want to do this and this and this. And everything is incredibly thought out and played out. Here's how many people I need. Here's how much it will cost. Here's how we do the bond uh, issuing. Here's how we, here's how we control the workflow. All that stuff. 
And as a result, there's some insane statistic that I don't quite remember from the book. It's like, you know, 30% of all of the uh, Great Depression public works projects for the entire country were controlled by New York and by Moses because he was just better prepared and smarter and worked harder than everybody else. You know, there's those famous scenes, well, famous to me, I don't know if they're famous to anybody else, but <laughs> the scenes where he's like, he gets into his car in the morning and he, like, he basically starts talking and dictating memos and stuff to his secretaries uh, as he is getting dressed in the morning. He does it all the way down the elevator of his building. He does it out to his car. He sits in the back of his car and continues to dictate those memos and issue statements and requests and whatever. And he just never stopped working. And and as a result, he got an amazing amount of stuff done. And I don't think that Caro tries to bury that. I think he uh, properly kind of pays homage to what he did, the state parks and the and the bridges and tunnels and stuff that no one else could have possibly gotten done. You know, he talks about that and he celebrates it in a certain way, but he also is incredibly even-handed in the way that he explains that as he went along, he started to see the value of, you know, political contacts and of, of like, you know, deal-making and bargaining. And, you know, he alters the course of roadways to avoid the properties of rich and powerful people who can give him favors and and as a result, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people's commutes end up being much longer than they should be. And he destroys neighborhoods and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I, I can't imagine anyone could create a better or more sort of accurate portrait of Moses. But I also don't think that there's ever going to be a time where someone could present a uh, a portrait of Moses that is is only sort of glowing or it's celebratory right. because the details of what he did are so well known and so thoroughly laid out in that book that you just, you would have to be, it would have to be just a, a, a polemic uh, designed to undermine Caro's research. And I don't think anyone would be interested in that personally. <laughs> Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's impossible to, I mean, you're in Brooklyn now. I live in Brooklyn. It's impossible to be in New York and not, and having read this and not like you get on Sunset Park and the Gowanus Expressway and I drive under it and I think to myself, this destroyed this neighborhood. Or yeah. when you're driving in from the north on the Bronx, uh, the Cross Bronx Expressway and you're like, how many people had to be moved to make this happen. It's, it's impossible to look at the city and his downfall at the end uh, with his total abandonment of public transportation and not think about him. It's it, once you've read the book, you know too much about how New York is currently today. hundred percent. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that was the thing that really grabbed me about it was if you've lived in the city, it basically answers every question you've ever had about the city. When you say to yourself, why is it so goddamn hard to get to the airport? It shouldn't be this hard <laughs> to get to the right, airport. Right, and then right, you read right. that book and you're like, oh yeah, well, that's why. And, you know, when you, like, uh, to me, I, full disclosure, uh, my wife got so annoyed at me when I read this book that she actually, like, for the first and only time banned me from talking about it at cocktail parties or dinner parties. <laughs> she was like, you have to stop fucking talking about the power broker. And it's so annoying. And I was like, you're totally right. And I, I will stop. But the reason that that happened was because 
the number of individually amazing stories about different decisions that he made is just, it's just ceaseless. Like to me, I remember so specifically the fight he had with, I think at the time, governor of New York, uh, Franklin Roosevelt about, or maybe it was LaGuardia, I can't remember, but about how he, when he was building those parkways, they made him, the, the law stated that the, uh, overpasses had to be 10 feet high so buses could get down. And uh, Moses, who was a racist, uh, didn't like the idea of <laughs> funny, people coming in, right? So so he was like, no, I'm not going to do that because he wanted it to just be the exclusive province of rich people who had cars. And they fought and fought and fought. And for maybe the only time for, you know, 10 years in the direction, they, they stood up to him. And they're like, no, this is the law. You have to do this. It has to be 10 feet high. And so he was like, all right, fine. And so he made them arched, and the center, uh, the very center of the arch was 10 feet high, uh, but it quickly sloped down on either side, so buses couldn't get through. And he sort of said, you know, I, well, I, I answered the, I obeyed the law. It's 10 feet high. See, it's right there, 10 feet high. And because it was whatever, 1940-something, it was too, like, the, it was, the construction was sort of happening in the dark. And they, until by the time they figured it out, it was too late. There's nothing they could do. And as a result, you cannot get any public transportation to run down those parkways and expressways. I mean, that's insane. Like, if, it's, it's, it's unthinkable. And, you know, there's, there's so many of those. The, the lack of access to the water above 96th Street and then the, the subsequent um, gates that he put in that featured wrought iron uh, images of monkeys and apes as a, like, uh, a just overtly racist gesture to the black mm-hmm. communities that lived above 96th Street. I mean, it, it just, the more, every page of that book contains details like that that you just literally can't believe. Um, and it also, like you said, it just answers so many questions that you have about the city of, like, why is, why is the area around Yankee Stadium so awful? And why was why is Third Street in Brooklyn so miserable? Third Avenue, it's just one by right. one you just learn every detail of why this city is so can be so maddening and infuriating, and why certain neighborhoods fell into disrepair while others thrived. He's the answer to every single one of those questions. Uh, on a personal note, the only book my wife has ever banned me from talking about was Infinite Jest. And I will not get into that now, but boy, would I like to. And it was around page 400 when I tried to explain the Quebecois wheelchair, separatist wheelchair assassins. And she said, yeah, she said, I think I'm about done talking about this book with you, Gareth. And uh, if you could not talk about it around me, that would also be appreciated. The experience of the power broker probably taught me a lesson and it probably led me to not talk about infinite just as much as I ordinarily would have. Right. But what you did just describe with the power broker, and that's a great example about the 10 foot height. And he's established so well at the beginning as the best bill drafter in Albany. I think what this book does, it really captures that Moses succeeded by assaulting and twisting and manipulating language. And yeah. we're definitely and I'm having a hard time looking at this book, not in our current moment. I'll, I'll cop to that right away. But how I mean, like that is how 
our current situation in our current election with Donald Trump has happened, no? And the truth in media and things like that. Like you're a writer. How do you see this use of language um, and its relationship to power? Well, I think if there's a if there's a key difference between current situation and that situation, it would be that Moses was a sort of master manipulator, um, but from the side of kind of brilliance and, and like brilliant arrogance. And Trump is a sort of master manipulator from the complete other side, which is just straight up lying and ignorance. <laughs> like he doesn't yeah. mm-hmm. like say what he will, like, uh, you know, say what he will about Moses, but like his kind of, his acumen was, unparalleled in both his intelligence and his ability to kind of, you know, manipulate political systems and his, he had this kind of, uh, way of sort of worming his way through the system undetected until it was too late. Trump is just a sledgehammer. Like he's just a gigantic (laughs) kind of loud, boisterous, you know, sledgehammer of a, of a person who just smashes the truth into little bits in front of you and dares you to, say, dares you to call him on it. And when you call him on it, he just says, no, you're wrong. And he keeps going. You know, there was Mm -hmm. a moment at the end of the campaign where Trump was talking in Michigan and he announced that he had won an award uh, of of man of the year in Michigan. And uh, he, there was no such award and he had never won it. And no one even blinked. Like it was just kind of like, oh, well, everybody just got exhausted. Like, Trump just exhausts you by bashing you over the head with lies over and over again until you're just like too tired to say anything. Moses, I mean, there's a reason, you know, one of the only times he failed uh, is when he ran for mayor. And mm-hmm. it's because he was the, he was the opposite of Trump. He did not want to be in the spotlight. He preferred to hide in the shadows and pull strings from the shadows. And, you know, in the sequence in the book where he runs for mayor, Moses describes him as not seemingly not even wanting to win. Like he would give speeches and he would kind of shuffle up to the podium and he would kind of murmur and mumble and kind of go through his thing. And he would just kind of sit down and he almost seemed indifferent to the process. And it's because he was smarter than Trump is. And he had this, I think he probably had, there were a few worlds left to conquer for him and being mayor of New York was one of them, but ultimately holding elected office. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like he had more power than the mayor did. He had more power than the governor of New York, and he arguably had more power than the president. I mean, when FDR becomes president, he's still trying to oust Moses, and he still fails. So, right. you know that the only that it they they came about there, like they they had they had the same end ultimately, which was just raw power and control. But they they went about it in two completely different ways. You know, it, it it was from it was like a from the shadows versus from the spotlight, and I don't hmm. know which one I would prefer. Like, I I don't know which which <laughs> which delivery mechanism I would prefer my pure evil to be. I always find it poetic, and I, it's been a couple of years since I've I've read it. And I was flipping through it. I, I do believe a big part of his downfall when he finally went head to head with Rockefeller. And first of all, can we just all agree after? a thousand straight pages of this guy winning everything he's doing except for that one election. Um, it was so gratifying to see him get taken down and become this bitter old man. I mean, I just, it's what a wonderful end to this book. 
I loved how he his big move for so many decades was threatening to quit. And finally, he ran up to someone who was just like, sure, I accept. And then, <laughs> that was amazing. And then he's was, just like, incredible. oops. It's such a great show. I mean, I was just going to ask yeah, you, I how know. gratifying did you find his downfall having invested so emotionally in this book? And look, it's an investment. It's 1,200 very dense pages. And look, when, when you first recommended it, I kept waiting for, and now's when he's going to become governor or something. Nope, he's just still doing park stuff. And I, like, I had no idea his story even when I first picked it up. So to see him pull all these strings and amass so much power in the shadows, it was so gratifying. I just want to know how, how you reacted emotionally to his downfall. I, I thought it was like, I thought it was like shocking in about a hundred ways. The first way was, my thought was, oh, that's all you had to do? Like, just accept his resignation? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's so crazy that he's the architect. He had gotten so powerful that he ultimately was the architect of his own demise, which is always the kind of most satisfying end of a story for whether it be like superhero villains or comic book villains or just your run-of-the-mill human villain. He was the, he was the one who did it to himself, and he had done it so many times. He had just, he had said that I'm going to resign and I dare you to accept. And it was a way, it was kind of the ultimate way to kind of leverage his own power. And then to have Rockefeller just quietly accept him and give a press conference and say he is resigning was so incredible. I mean, it really was, it's a remarkable moment. I also love the detail that the reason it started at all was because he decided to try to like, it's like the tiny of all of the things that he did. And there were so many that were so massive in their scope. I, in my memory, it's because he was going to sell the restaurant. He was going to privatize the restaurant in Central Park, right? right. Isn't that yeah. And then, and so it's like this tiny nothing thing. It's like this little tiny itsy bitsy slip up in a, you know in a forty year unchecked reign of power that included you know that by the time it ended meant that he had a fully staffed restaurant in every borough that only he was allowed to go into, uh, <laughs> despite the fact that you can't eat in five boroughs simultaneously. And he basically had his own <laughs> symphony orchestra to play for him whenever he wanted. And he had, you know, uh, there were about 40 different gigantic public works projects that bore his own name. And this is like a, ti- this is nothing. This is like a tiny little thing that he was just like, oh, he probably didn't give it a second thought. And then some wealthy Upper West Sider decides that it's, <laughs> that that like privatizing a little bit of Central Park is like a bridge too far, and you know a very short amount of time later the whole thing comes crashing down. It's a it's it's a really wonderful end to the story, and there's like a there's a there's a way in which the only way I what I felt that when I read it was this is the only way it could have happened right there there's no way that someone was going to become more powerful than he was if Rockefeller mm. and LaGuardia and uh, and, you know, FDR couldn't do it. Like, who's going to beat him? And the answer is himself. <laughs> right. <laughs> he gets, right. You know, the only right. person who could beat him was himself by just kind of, like, making one more little tiny arrogant move, not sensing, because he had been so unchecked for so long, not sensing that it was dangerous, and then pulling the same shit he always pulled, and then having someone call him on it. It's just a, it's a perfect ending. And it's like, again, this is why there is somewhere out there a good movie or miniseries version of this, it's because of moments like that that are just too perfectly constructed and dramatic to believe. So the final question here is a two-parter. Number one, you're a baseball guy. I want to know how 
responsible you hold Moses for the Dodgers leaving Brooklyn. And two, you're a writer. <laughs> you're a writer. Robert Carroll wrote this whole book longhand, as he always does. Can you even imagine writing a dense, highly cited nonfiction book just with a pen? Well, the first question, I would not really blame him for the Dodgers leaving, I have to say. I think that West Coast baseball was always, I mean, at the time the Dodgers left, St. Louis, I think, was the furthest west that baseball stretched in America. That was always going to happen at some point. There were three teams in New York for a very long time, it was, and the, the opportunities were just too great on the West Coast. So, you know, no matter who was in, in power at the time, I think one of those teams probably leaves, or in this case, two teams. I will fully blame him for the unbelievably shitty quality of Chase Stadium, <laughs> yes. which was like the worst, the worst, you know, his like little Roman, Roman Coliseum experiment, uh, building himself a giant stadium for gladiators to battle in. Uh, it, it was at the time... At the time it was shut down, it was probably the worst stadium in baseball or one of the worst. Uh, and that is 100% his fault. Um, <laughs> but I don't think he's, I don't think he's the guy that made the Dodgers leave. And to answer your second question, I, in these uh, modern times, my hand cramps up when I write like thank you notes yeah. to people uh, <laughs> for dinner parties or something like I can't possibly imagine uh, doing what Caro did longhand. I can't imagine doing it with a, with a computer and like 20 assistants. Um, you know, I used to work <laughs> at SNL and Jim Downey, who's the greatest sketch yeah. writer ever, mm-hmm. you know, been, been associated with that show for, since essentially the beginning. He still, uh, to the best of my knowledge, he still writes his sketches longhand and then dictates them <laughs> to writer's assistants who type them up into script form. And I always found that incredibly comforting. Like it, it, I, I, it felt like somehow the direct connection of his brain through his arm to a pen or pencil onto a piece of paper was like, it is the purest form of expression as a writer. And so I, I always loved that he did that. And knowing that Caro did it for that book, it makes me feel like, like in, in some weird way, Caro writing that book longhand is as impressive a feat as any of the feats that Moses accomplished <laughs> <laughs> while he was uh, while he was you know building giant bridges and tunnels and stuff. So yeah, it's it's amazing. I I just I the entire project uh, is is so remarkable and the story is so important. Uh, it's I feel like the main feeling I had after I read it was that we just owe him an incredible debt of gratitude. Like we should all we should all write Robert Caro a thank you note longhand for, <laughs> for <laughs> I I love that idea. Now you've given us so much time. We want to thank you so much for coming on. Uh people should follow you on Twitter at Ken Tremendous. Look out for future hopefully future book uh book recos because we we your your loyal book club will be will be watching my friend. When the drama comes, gunshots go. Never been a dope boy, but I got a dope flow. Straight to your brain, how my fans feeling? Oh, okay, you know me for balling and making jump shots, but I be moving the crowd like a hundred gunshots. We are joined by one of America's best sports writers, one of my favorite people in the NFL and in sports in general, and someone I consider a very good friend, Judy Batista. 
Her work has appeared in the New York Times. She wrote there for years. Now she's a senior writer for NFL.com. You'll find her on NFL Network, Inside the NFL. If you need to know about the NFL, she's the one to turn to. But today, we're not going to talk about any of that. We're going to talk about Judy's lifelong passion for Van Halen. (laughs) Judy, welcome to the show. How are you? It gets played a lot in stadiums, so it dovetails very nicely with the career. So on Just Not Sports, we're like, I think, hard-hitting journalists, okay? So I got to get to the most pressing question right away. We're going to talk about how the whole thing started, but there's really only one thing to talk about with Van Halen. Um, we all know the best singer was um, Gary Sharon, but in you know, there's been two others. So of the other two, where do you lean? Uh, I lean firmly on we're only going to talk about the David Lee Roth era because that's the only era that I count as Van Halen. Shots fired. Everything else is, I don't want to say fraudulent. That's a little strong, but (laughs) I feel like it's a spinoff group. It's like, you remember when, uh, what group was it that hired the lead singer that sounded like the old lead singer? That was Journey. Journey, yeah. Yeah, I'm, No. That's Somewhere in Cabo journey? San Lucas right now, Sammy Hagar just <laughs> right. drops sorry, his Sammy. drink. <laughs> like, I can drive 55. Great. That was fine, but not Van Halen. Yeah, look, I think Van Halen is, it, it, like, the, the essence of Van Halen is when, the early Roth years, you know? It's like the L.A. strip, yes. party Which scene, tight go. pants, jumping around okay. stage, goofing around. Like, that to me does sit. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more than just, like, I don't, I think it's just like the personality of the band. I mean, later Van Halen, like right now, that kind of stuff is just so sincere. And I think what strikes me is that's not what early Van Halen is so goofy and fun. I mean, there are, they're just, that, that's their whole vibe. So to me, I just. They, they sing happy trails, hot for teach. Like they're telling yeah. jokes in the middle of songs, right. you know? Right. So. I mean, I know that I read an interview once that I think like all weight is one of Eddie's favorite songs because of the musicality of it and the sincerity of it. And like, I hated that song. (laughs) Right. David Lee Roth has a real borscht belt kind of I like the kind of music you would play, you know, when you're driving with the windows down and you're driving on the beach, like that's the Van Halen I wanted. (laughs) And then when they got into like the real, like the synthesis, I didn't really love the synthesizer era. That wasn't my favorite part of it. There's a lot of questionable eras for Eddie. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something we can I was get into as we go. To Eddie. Uh, let me add, I'm devoted to Eddie. But okay, so let's get yeah, into yeah. that. Yeah. So, where's the devotion center? Tell the story about about your your love for Van Halen and how it ultimately kind of crescendoed to this and what amazing meeting with Eddie. Strange. Um, well, I think it started it started in high school, and I can. I can say that my friend Dana Doty, who is now Dana Hauser, a school teacher in Florida, was really at the nexus of it. Do you think anyone's hot for teacher? Dana, I'm sorry, I don't know you. Oh God. But she was into music, and that's how she was really into rock music. I was always into it too. And so we met in high school. And you know, in high school, I went to high school in South Florida, so you're always driving around, and you had the car radio on, and like you're driving around with the windows down, and the radio really loud. And was Van Halen the Van Halen. the band? I mean, I know they're an LA band, but like, it, yeah, I feel like no. it's the it's the LA of the of the East Coast. Yeah, they were like they were big in my high school. I remember yeah. that. But like, you would go to a Van Halen concert, and like everybody from you know your high school was there. So yeah, awesome. they were pretty big. So you you go to you 
she brought you into the show. I mean, did you know? Did you know them? Did you know the band pretty well before you saw them live? Or I did. Was it, yeah. yeah. I mean, I you know I'd been a fan. I mean, I loved rock music. Like that was what we would now call classic rock. You know, which yeah. I hate that term, but I mean that was always like I remember buying Back in Black. I remember the record yep. store I was in. I remember where it was in Fort Lauderdale. I remember buying it. So I was always into it. But then. Uh, I do want to make that note. Like you are into rock and roll, not just Van Halen. Yeah, We're diving true. deep on Van Halen today. But John Clayton yeah. is not the only hard rocking <laughs> NFL reporter. No. Right. Yeah. I've seen Judas Priest in concert, which is probably I unexpected. follow up. <laughs> I saw um, Slayer once by myself. Slayer. Iron uh, Maiden. During my rock I saw music Iron Maiden. Iron, Mu- Iron yeah. Maiden. Yeah. <laughs> See, the, 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 like, strange. So, but Iron Maiden, like those bands. They had a much different sound than Van yes. Halen in terms because Van Halen mixed in like doo wop. Well, they were yeah. fun. Yeah, they. I always thought that they were sort of like almost dance music, like you know, right? Like dance the night away. I mean, that was a real dance song. Um, so yeah, but that was sort of my tangent, my rock and roll tangent. But I mean, Van Halen was my that was the band I loved most. So when was the first time you saw them? I. I am trying to think. I was either a sophomore or junior in high school. Did you um, buy the T-shirt at the concert. Yeah, and I wish I still had it. But like you know, oh. it was like that baseball style. Oh, oh that's awesome! Yeah. That and everybody well. wore them to school the next day. My yeah. God. <laughs> and your daughter growing up in New York now, like in a few thing. years in high school, if she had a vintage Van Halen T-shirt, oh. that right. jersey length. But Ooh. I wouldn't let her wear it because I wouldn't want it wrecked. Yeah, good but, point. Um, so I saw. Uh, we went to the concert at the Hollywood Sportatorium, which was where all of the, uh, just an absolute disaster of a location. That sounds like a Simpsons reference, like the Sportatorium. (laughs) I mean, it it was a horrible venue. I mean, it was great. Every major tour went through there, but I fire trap. Now that I think about it, like as a parent, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe my parents let me go. Um, Actually, the first time we went to see them, like I think I was 15 or 16 and like one of my dad's friends chaperoned us. How many times did you see them? Uh, six. I've seen wow. them six times. That's a real Only number. Only with David Lee Roth. I never, after the break. Yeah, so if they'd, got, if they'd stay together, you'd be on like show 150, right? You'd be the Bill yeah, Walton Yeah, but of you Van know, Halen. when they toured last year. You'd be the year, guy yes, the, among the sports I'd be writers. the person <laughs> tweeting like the <laughs> playlist. <laughs> um, but when they toured, you know, last year with David Lee Roth, my husband, who also liked Van Halen, um, asked if I wanted to go. They were at Jones Beach. And I said, no, like, I don't want to see them old. Like, I just want yeah. them preserved, preserved in, in amber. amber. Like, like, yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. like, I just want to remember what they looked like when I was 17 years old, you know, and they were <laughs> healthy and, you know, 25 years old. That's what I want to Before think Eddie Van Halen was on his second jaw. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was a tough, yeah, yeah, it was a tough period for Eddie. So with that co- first concert, is that, that's the one where you got your, your souvenir, if you will? No. Oh, okay. Uh, that was on the Diver Down tour was my first one. It was the... Ninth, what year was it? So that would have been 1983, 82, okay. 83. That was with the red scuba guitar? That was the red and yeah. the... Right, the Diver Down fly, yeah, the flag yeah. on the album cover. And I did not that, bring that one today. So so that that was really a great album. But it, uh, apparently, I just in that same interview, I read that like Eddie didn't really like that album because they did a lot of covers. And I'm like, I, I really like that album, but all right. Uh, but so it was the 1984 tour that I, uh, you know, you had at that time you had to camp out for concert tickets. Oh, yeah. You know, there was nothing mm-hmm. online. You, 
So we had camped out for concert tickets and we got second row tickets. I mean, how this many is, days or how many hours or whatever? We camped out overnight in, wow. at, in the parking there, lot. Was and, there, t- and there were a lot of people. I mean, you know, it was yeah, no yeah. big deal. A Everybody scene, I it. imagine, you know, it becomes was. A, like it, but everybody, I mean, you just did it. It was, yeah. that's how you did it. If you wanted to get great seats, there was nothing, you know. You it's definitely got that link later, dazed and confused vibe to yeah. the whole thing, you know. <laughs> but. I can it, tell you that we were sleeping in the car. Like I'm like I'm not sleeping on the sidewalk. Okay? Was it just the two of you, there. or were there a group of you that yeah, were like there were rotating? Yeah, there were a bunch of people, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. from school, and then there were all other people too. So it was someone was smoking a joint on the. Right, I mean, you're line. not right. We <laughs> yeah. were not alone in a parking lot right. in Fort Lauderdale. Um, so for one of the shows on that, they, I think they played like four nights in a row, and we went to three of them or two in a row. And the first night we had second row seats and. Uh, you know, so, and sort of right in front of where they were. And, uh, you know, Eddie would play and then flick his guitar pick out. And once I realized that was happening, I... Then you beat some ass and you got a guitar pick. I got a little unglued. (laughs) And and the poor guy who was in front of me, who was in row one, so he'd obviously, he'd already won the lottery. He was in row one. I just, you know, you're standing on your seat, right? Mm. Everybody's standing on the seat. And so it was very easy to push him. Out of the way, and you <laughs> and got, just and you got to pick. get the pick. Yeah. And you're holding it right oh, here. So for our our, our uh, audio <gasps> audience here, she's got a pick. It's I can't. It looks like it was a, a white picket one time. It's a yeah, little yellow. It's a little yellowed. It's got the Van Halen winged symbol on the front. Awesome. And then it's got an Edward. autograph from Eddie that's actually part of. Yeah. Yeah. But it's this also been, partly worn off. You can see where his finger. Yeah, probably right, used it, it to right. play. Um. Yeah, it's been in my jewelry box ever since with things like, you know, like my engagement ring. I mean, you know, important stuff. <laughs> I was going to say, I like that you got that in high school and it's been in your jewelry box ever since. Like, Anthony, this is my hope chest. <laughs> you know? My husband was, I said to my husband, I've got to bring the guitar pick. I said, it's in my wallet. And he's like, it's been in your wallet this whole time. <laughs> so that's how you what my husband thinks of this whole time. Yeah. He's like, it's okay. I've had a, this condom in my wallet since I was 16. So. <laughs> so. <laughs> one day, one day, man. So let's talk. I mean, that's, first of all, it's an amazing story. And then. It's so cool that you still have it too. I mean, frankly, oh, so much stuff, you move once or twice and these things start to fall away. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah, well, that's why I like I don't have the vinyl albums. Because, you don't have the you know, T-shirt, I, and yeah. I don't have the T-shirts because I moved yeah. and got rid of stuff. But let's talk you about touched it. Yeah. <laughs> you actually touched it. Well, the albums itself. What's your favorite? What's your favorite record of theirs, and why? Uh, well, I liked one. I liked the very first one. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, Was running with the devil their breakout hit? Yeah. Yeah. And I still I, love I, that. Like I still love that song when I hear it on the radio. Yeah, I me still too. Really good going on that one i actually it's i have to jump in that is my favorite song that is also and i want to tweet this out to our listeners as a poll that i would argue is one of the greatest first song on a first album like you put it on (laughs) you listen to the first song and you're like oh that's what this whole band Band is is like it is just it is a perfect like there's that there's Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah. I would argue Time for Some Action by Redman is actually a really good example of that. And some others. Of course you'd argue that. But okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think Running with the Devil is as good a first song, first album as you'll ever hear. Was Shout at the Devil Motley, Motley Cruz's first song on their first album? I don't remember. I, don't know. I, I, don't I know that was like their, their like, I know they were, Van Halen like very much inspired them and then they came out with Shout at the Devil and it's like. Uh, okay, <laughs> I, didn't like a little close. I didn't know that. Well, I read the I read the crew book, The Dirt, 
And it's like all them just hanging out. The beginning is all them hanging out in L.A. with David Lee Roth doing a ton of coke. And they were and 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 uh, and Story David Lee Roth and DLR was like like the most famous guy in the room when you know I think like they were all kind of making it, but Van Halen really broke I think in like the late seventies, whereas right. Motley Crue was That's more right. like in eighty one right. I think breakout. That's right. So I'm I don't know, man. My my song is my jam is Panama. Um, there's a couple yeah. things about Panama I want to unpack really quick with you. One, I think any great Van Halen song's got to have like a chorus that sounds like a hundred people are singing it simultaneously. It's like like so it's Panama, uh, uh, and then you get like that little simple Eddie riff that's like totally infectious and mel- and melodic. But then you get the absolute staple of of a DLR song, which is the three minute soliloquy in the middle with with like just safe enough for on air radio, but like a lot like. Puts your hand between my my knees, dips the seat back, and you're like, oh, okay, double entendre. But like, yeah, mom worried there for a second. Like everything about that song, I feel like captures that whole era of the band. I my favorite songs are uh, "Dance the Night Away" and yeah. "Beautiful Girls." Um, yeah, beautiful see, I girls are really the real good. sort of dance, We're like definitely melodic. A- again, like driving with the windows down. Like, are they know. a pop band or are they a metal band? I, d- I never thought of them as a metal band. I don't think I thought of them as a pop band, but I didn't think of them as heavy metal. Well, it's because you were spending all your time at Judas Priest concerts. Right, I mean, heavy metal is ACDC, <laughs> yeah. you know? Like, that's what I think of. They're, I never thought of them as metal. They're not that different from ACDC, though, right? I know. I think they're a rock and roll band. I don't think... I think they lack, frankly, and I mean this in the best possible way, they lack the darkness yeah, there was to no be darkness a metal band. Them. Like, right. they're a fun... Rock and roll party, band. you know, life is good. We're jumping off big speakers. You yeah, know, you know, that he jumped of off a lot of speakers. Yeah. <laughs> like if he doesn't have, hip, if he hasn't it. had hip replacement surgery, <laughs> yeah. um, he's he's a miracle. I, uh. you know. I look at him the way like you look at Keith Richards. Like wow, he's still upright. That's awesome. The word I've yeah. just somebody said about. Richard's years ago, it's always fit with these those sorts of people. Man, that guy is a survivor. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. like, to be fair, David Lee Roth had a lot more non-jumping years than Keith Richards <laughs> did. Sure. He a far more active uh, part of music culture. Um, so, so you... Oh, go ahead. No, no, I just want to go back. Like, So this experience with them, and like you brought your guitar pick and things like that, you very much experienced them as they were... New Exploding, and live right. and touring, yes. so you got to live through their explosion, yes. salad days, yeah. if you will. Yes, like I did not. Uh, when 1984 came out, I did not, and Jump became like this phenomenon, right? And that's when yeah. everybody else discovered Van Halen, and you know, of course, the old timers were like, eh. Like I didn't love that song, mm-hmm. you know, because again, I didn't love the synthesizer did you like the album, thing. Though? I like the album, yeah. yeah, but I didn't love the song because I didn't love the synthesizer part of it. Um, but you know, yeah, that's when they really exploded. And then everybody else was just like, well, Van Allen's the biggest band in the world. And I'm like, yeah, they've been awesome all these years before, you know, I was legitimately scared of David Lee Roth as a kid because there was, I don't remember (laughs) if it was from his solo days or when it was from Van Halen, but he did some sort of weird thing where he was a bird. Like, do you remember it was either in a video or some kind of promotional materials and he had like this beer weird bird mask face. And I used to see it in stores and get super creeped out by it. <laughs> I don't remember that. I do remember Eddie wore like those sort of the overalls, the red and white overalls on one of the tour. I remember that was a huge, people like then were wearing things that looked like that. 
yeah, you know, come on. Yeah, that's a tough look to yeah, pull yeah, off yeah, in yeah, high school, yeah. right? If you're not a rock god. Right. Where does Eddie rank as a guitar player historically do you, to you? Oh. <laughs> Number one. Not personally. I mean, well, like, if you're, if I was, I was going to tap into your reporter sense, right, and I you would do a power is he rankings. Greater than Jimi Hendrix? I don't know. I mean, if you could but, redraft know, the no, night, no, no, no. <laughs> if you could redraft <laughs> the 1978 guitar draft, <laughs> who would be the number one overall? Player? Much better value, long term, yeah. in some other places. No, I don't know. I, I, I like, mean, would I, you say he's a top top five guitarist of all time? Uh, I think so. He had such a unique sound. I mean, look, I'm not a guitar. I mean, I don't know anything about yeah, playing the guitar, yeah. but I mean, he had such a unique sound. I was um, surprised when Prince died, how many people went right to Prince's. Oh, he's guitarist. the best guitar player of that era. And which is, I mean, he's a great guitar player, but I don't think of Prince a guitar because of all that Prince did away from playing the well, guitar. Whereas you think of Eddie Van Halen as all you think of. Really? I think of guitar and <laughs> right. I think of like, you know, making bad decisions. So I, well, that's because Eddie. I mean, Eddie wasn't dancing. I mean, the way Prince performed. That's right. right. I mean, he was so multi-talented. Right. Do you have a favorite solo of, of his? I love Eruption. Yeah. You know that, which I remember they opened one of the concerts I was at, uh, and I remember where I was sitting. It's so bizarre how you get this whole like. I was sitting to the side of the stage, and they opened. It was dark, and he started playing Eruption, and the place just went bananas. Would and, you? Uh, would you like dweedle dweedle that solo for us right now? <laughs> Could you do it? Like I. Can't. Uh, 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 like, right. come on! I, I'm I not a go. I I play a lot of air guitar actually. <laughs> you so. do? Yeah. yeah, I would. I mean, I played air guitar in my car. That's for sure. At home, give us one one lick on. of one song. Oh wow! I can't. I can't do that. No, I can't. would never. No, I can't. <laughs> See, our listeners wow. can't hear, but that was Judy. What? She's a oh, far, wow. far lower voice um, in her guitar, with the guitar range. Wow, so, I mean, that was impressive. So let's let's just kind of let's just kind of talk for a second about the elephant in the room. Band breaks up. Take us back to the moment you heard that Van Halen, because at the time everyone had to have assumed, right? Like now Eddie's just going to go be a solo artist, whatever. But when you found out that Van Halen was coming back and they they brought in Sammy Hagar, we know you didn't continue with them. Did you want to give it a chance? Did you give it a chance? Or were you like, uh, I'm out? It was actually, the timing was good because I was going to college. So it was a natural break. And I was, uh, you know, I mean, I listened to them, but I was just never the same. I wasn't about to go to their concerts. I mean, it was just never captured me like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, as a, I mean, you knew that they had, had a tense relationship for a few years. So you sort of figured this is the way it was going to go. Still, like, they were on top of the world when they broke up. I mean, they were as big as they ever were. And then they break up and you're like, what are you? I mean, even as an 18-year-old, like, stupid kid, you know, you're just like, are you insane? Like, well, you're breaking up now? Yeah, right. You know, so. It's got to be hard for somebody with the ego and showmanship of David Lee Roth to perform in a band that is named after right. someone else. Right, where you know? he's not... Doesn't have the creative control, right? In the band, so. but yeah, that was. Do you do you like David Lee Roth's solo work? Uh, I had some of his solo stuff. I didn't mind him as a solo artist. I, I mean, I would have preferred that Eddie had been a solo artist yeah. rather than reform Van Halen. Although I do kind of like that now Eddie's son is part of the band. Huh. You know, I sort of like that 
the sentimental part of that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, so David Lee Roth. <laughs> You're not a fan of that part. No, no, I like that too. I was just, in my head, cut, I was picturing. Wolfgang out of the whole thing in your <laughs> eyes. No, in my head, I was, pic- I was trying to His picture. Wolfgang? Wolfgang, after Mozart. Wolfgang because, Van Halen is some hell of a name. My God. I was trying to picture. You can follow they, him on Twitter, by the oh, way. I might jump on that. <laughs> when Prince died, they showed this famous clip of, of um, uh, him playing with a band with the son in it. And I was like, wait, was that Van Halen? No, it was George Harrison's son. Um, mm-hmm. with, uh, like a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing. Yeah, it was the one, oh, yeah. My Guitar Gently Weeps, which right. tore around the internet. So yeah. I feel like we don't talk sports. I can make a sports analogy. It's part of the, part of the lexicon. I kind of feel like David Lee Roth as a solo artist was like when Mike Martz became a head coach in that all the good stuff of David Lee Roth that fit really well, like in a rock song, we tried to talk about like the, the long winded interludes and like the kind of fifties doo-wop um, inspiration, all that became completely unchecked. And you're like, I feel like this guy's kind of Phil Collins in tighter pants. This is not cool anymore. And I liked, I liked just a gigolo and I like his California girls and stuff, but I felt like he was really just making videos and being a a rock star. And there was nothing to say musically at all. Yeah, I would agree with that. I guess now we would say it was sort of self-indulgent. I mean, it was, Sort of. David no, Lee Roth. It was, it was, the, now we'd say yes, it was self I mean, it was David Lee Roth being David Lee Roth <laughs> yeah, with no right. check on it. Of totally. Yeah. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, you know, this was a self indulgent okay. band. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about eruption and the solos. They and named it like, after like the nine members <laughs> in the band with the name. Yes, <laughs> yes. it was a self indulgent project. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like all great bands, it had Not ego and self indulgence yes. and friction. And, you know, that's. That's uh, one of the key elements to all this. So I always, I always wondered how the rest of the band. I don't know the answer to this. How the rest of the band felt when Eddie did did the thing with Michael Jackson and that blew up. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, what thing with Michael? You know, he played. Oh, he's he, played, he did the solos on beat it, and so yeah. I always wondered, like, did the rest of the band sort of roll their eyes at that because there he was off on his own and crossing genres, you know, like he, that was a different thing and exposed him to a whole other audience. I always thought like, did David Lee Roth yeah, resent that? Yeah. yeah. I, and I don't remember that solo. Could you uh, dweedle that for us? <laughs> no, you are not getting me to go down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that was also a duty. Good job. Um, <laughs> all right. El- other elephant in the room. Are they a hairband? Is Van Halen no, a hairband? I never thought of them as a hairband. Defend band your case. Either. No, they had great hair, but that's not the same as being a hairband. A hairband is rat. Quiet Riot was a hairband. Total hair. What do you think of when you think of Quiet Riot hair? Uh, I think Van, they were Van Halen knockoff. Molly Crew, <laughs> I think of yeah. as a hairband, but I don't think they were hair. They had musical skill. They weren't out there yeah. just with gigantic hair and crazy outfits. I mean, they had... You know, it's funny. I think that Van Halen, and partly this is helped by where they came, by coming a little earlier, they were the inspiration and precursor for a lot of those hair bands. And then I think Guns N' Roses did it so well that they've also now ascended yeah, to a level sort of behov- beyond, yeah. beyond hair yeah. bands. Yeah. I think everybody else is wallowing in this hairy muck down at the bottom of the yeah. shower. I but I mean, Van Halen would have been good without the hair. Like they would have been a good band if they didn't have hair, but like there were bands whose entire careers, such as they were, were about their look. That's the greatest way 
to to consider whether a band is a hair band. You just said, would they be good without the hair? Like it sounds so subtle, but yeah, Miley Crew would have been good without the hair. They had a hard sound at first. They ultimately sold out, right. got more poppy. I think Home you could make a case. Guns, Guns and Roses would obviously. Guns and Roses was not a hair band. That's right. right. Certainly, Slash, and, and to be fair, different hair. Like Slash's hair is not <laughs> like the guys from from Rat. And I okay, and there's a grace period too because you could argue that Twisted Sister. Motley Crue were, were all doing like a post New York Dolls like you know meditation on, to that on, too. Yeah. on glam mm-hmm. rock yeah. um, and that Motley Crue was closer to it but not and then like Poison I think is, is the is the, Skid the Row. turning point because Poison is, is so much a trivial music shop now Brett Michaels huge fan of the Rock of Love and Rock of Love bus but I, mean, I think every the, after Rose that, that's the cliff. If you, you can walk up to Poison and make a case that like they've got their moments, and anything that af, like after that that kind of resembles Poison is absolutely a hair band. There's no argument for it. Yeah, I, they were never. I never even would put them in the hair band, just as I would not think of them as heavy metal. They were. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they were just a rock and roll, fun kind of band. Okay, I was gonna. I'm going to wade right into it here. So Brad and I have had a long debate wherein I have said... Incorrectly. ...that the greatest American rock and roll band is the Grateful Dead. For their songbook, the longevity of their career, great albums, things like that. It, it's a debate. We've carried this on in bars. I brought this up to my neighbor who played in a lot of rock bands, and he said, oh, without a doubt for me, it's Van Halen. Does Van Halen have a claim to be the greatest American rock and roll band? Uh, I think so. Because, okay, you can have the Grateful Dead, but if who else is there? Well, see, that it's a sort of tricky question because if you say American solo artist, it's a lot that's harder. Well, that's the no, 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 greatest that, British right. band is a lot that's harder. That's much harder. American bands is a much funkier, smaller pool. Right. I mean, who would you say otherwise? Guns N' Roses as an American band? They're not better than Van Halen. Well, they had no longevity. They had no longevity. They flamed out. We're still waiting for whatever the whole album we're waiting for now. It's going to be awesome. Chinese democracy is going to be great. Are you kidding? We're still waiting for them to show up for for the concert (laughs) they scheduled 28 years ago. Well, okay, the thing about the Grateful Dead and why I push back so much is I I don't feel like the Grateful Dead as a band capture what I would consider to be the soul of American rock and roll. Yes, They're a great very, band, but when you think about Amer- the American rock sound, um, I just feel like they're more of an outlier to that. It's not like they, they spawned, a, I mean, they spawned their fair share of imitators, but I, I would much rather talk about Van Halen or even Guns N' Roses um, or Nirvana as well, that's something that's probably is. more indicative of like American rock and roll, whereas the Grateful Dead, I think, are a very important eclectic band. But I, I don't know. I, I it, it just doesn't. Well, feel I mean, right. I, I would say, look, I think Nirvana is probably the most influential American band ever. I think you could make that case, right? I, yeah. I mean, for changing a sound and influencing a sound, I think. And even in the their toadies. short time, I think they covered a lot of artistic ground. I right. mean, they have straight ahead punk songs right. to lush arrangements, the most gorgeous cover of an old blues number you'll ever hear yeah. in your life, you know. And I think that they, granted, they were, they had a very small window, but they accomplished a lot with it. 
Right. So. They were very influential. Is that, that time. I mean, I think Grateful, the Grateful Dead has longevity on its side, but is right. that... Were they ever the MVP? That's a perfect... That was... Right. A, yeah. It's a very Bill Simmons-esque argument, like, did they ever have the, the championship right. belt? Which is fine. I mean, I think it's a perfectly legitimate argument. I, yes, they were the MVP of... Rock and roll Look, from like 1981 this, to 1984. We can save this. We can save the Grateful Dead talk for the Bill Walton podcast. <laughs> but I do have to ask. Bill, the, return our emails. Yeah, <laughs> in coming out of this, did your tastes go? Because we're talking about like more straight ahead rock bands and not hair. Did your tastes go into something like Nirvana? Did you follow rock and roll into grunge? I did. Yeah, okay. I did. Uh, well, in college, uh, going to school in Miami, first of all, that was a major pop era then, you know, oh, yeah. in the 80s, going into the late Madonna. 80s. Like Gloria Stefan, major America's pop, band. you yeah. know, uh, into Prince. I, mm-hmm. I saw Prince at the Orange Bowl in 1984 on that Easter Sunday. Awesome. That is awesome. That is a cool was, claim to fame. And it was very, you know, that was very controversial that he was going to play on on Easter, um, people were outraged oh. that they were going to have that. And I was, was and Prince great. said, guys, <laughs> it's okay. I have risen. Right. <laughs> now you work every day of the year covering sports. <laughs> right. so, right. Times have changed. Um, so there was, so yes, I mean, my tastes certainly evolved and then, um, Nirvana, you know, REM, but those guys, like when I think of, we were talking about this before, they are dark. Like some of their stuff is heavy and depressing. Like yeah. REM. I mean, everybody hurts. Like you just, you know, you want to jump off a bridge. It's just so Brad's, dark. Brad's going to host the R.E.M. episode of the Greatest American Rock and Roll Band. I, so. I do like They're R.E.M. Great. I love I'm, them. I, but, love I mean, grunge, that's though. sort of why, and yeah. I love grunge, but I mean, that's sort of why I liked Van Halen because you never got to the song on the album that you were like, oh. That's a really good point about them and their unique place, especially in the DLR years, to bring it back to that. Uh, you said it earlier, and it's, I think, what makes them... You know, America's band of summer almost. I mean, some yes. Bruce Springsteen writer is now crying and we're getting a lot of hate mail from all the sports writers in New York City. But they just, they only made fun songs. Yes. So. They were the perfect growing up as a teenager in South Florida, driving your car. Like mm-hmm. that was the music to have coming out of your car. That's what they were. Perfect. Can I, if you could do like a Steve Spurrier style rotation of lead singers here, because you know, David I would like Lee Roth it to be flame, more successful. Than right. Steve so Spurrier. David Lee Roth flames out. If you could have replaced him right then with another person from that era, anyone, if they'd had open auditions, who do you think could have made the band where you would have, st- like, who would you pair with Eddie and been like, this is going to work. I would listen to it. Wow. From that era. I don't know. Who would you do that with? John Bon Jovi. John Bon Jovi. I would love Bon Jovi and and Eddie together. I think because I think it would have. Bon Halen? I wouldn't. On anything. No, no. They would have called themselves Bon Halen. Oh, Bon Bon Halen. Halen. I think he said On Halen. I was like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, Bon Halen would be pretty freaking awesome. (laughs) I guess he would be. That would be a natural. I just heard "Living on a Prayer" today, so sure. Oh, yeah. could you dweedle some of that, like <laughs> the Richie Sambora solo uh, in the middle? I have to say, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they always play that at Gillette Stadium. That is a staple oh, of a game ye- at Gillette Stadium. Oh yeah, whoever's in charge of the music loves Bon Jovi there. Like, okay, this is a this is an interesting segue into sports. It's we can't talk careful. sports, but we can talk stadiums. And you spend a lot of your time around live sports. The a good knowledge of this part of the American rock and roll songbook is critical. It, there you go. Okay. Uh, Gillette Stadium. I always look forward to every game they play Eminence Front. 
every, and I look forward to it because you're not really hearing Eminence Front on the radio much right. anymore. But like, I was like, oh, this great song. Yeah, Tom Brady always used to run out to Tom Sawyer by Rush. Yeah, now he so. does Jay Z. I think. Welcome yeah. to the Jungle. Or, Welcome at, to the Jungle. At the is Jungle a big, is a big stadium song. What yeah. Van Halen is still in rotation? Anything? Running with the Devil is played constantly oh, at Devils games. Constant, no, just played in stadiums. Oh no, Devils everywhere. The Devils have that um, that. Uh, What's that Gary Glitter song they play all the time? Oh, yeah. It's like well, I thought right. a lot of places retired that. Right. We might be editing this out of the I think podcast. They, yeah, no, no, no. I think that, that it, there was a, uh, we talked about doing that yeah. in like a short, like a short film or something. Like just the, the that song was the the stadium song and the guy was like a total monster. Right. Um, okay, let me ask but you But these question. songs are timeless. Like that is the, yes. the quality to them, especially Van Halen. Like Running With The Devil is going to be 40 years old. In two years. Oh, wow. I'll be 43. Can I make a counter Horrible. to that? There are very few cars that put the seat back in the middle of underneath anymore. It's <laughs> <laughs> all auto. Like, that is dated poorly. So, um, yeah. let me, okay, let me ask you this question. You can answer this either as an analyst or as a woman. Is Eddie Van Halen attractive? Yes. Yeah. What makes Empirically him Empirically attractive? attractive. He just is. He's cute. I, he had I great do not hair. think Eddie Van Halen is an attractive man. I do not think that he is at all. Really? For like a huge rock star, no. I mean, he's a great guitarist, that's fine. But David Lee Roth was far more attractive. No, no, no. David Lee Roth had no. a real sex appeal in the 80s. I, I'm going to go with Valerie Bertinelli no. and Judy Batista on no. this one. No. What? Yeah. No. Yeah, no, Eddie was... Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, both more attractive than Eddie. No, no. But here's, well, no. You guys are crazy. No. No. They lived so hard, though. They were the, you know, look at the back cover of that. So I brought. This is amazing, right? I, yeah, yeah, I brought my, because I'm the Brooklyn hipster of Just Not Sports. <laughs> I brought my vinyl album of Van Halen's debut. When I used to DJ a lot of soul, funk, and rap music parties, I would like to drop Running with the Devil after I played Wu-Tang's Uzi. <laughs> so that was my progression but I thought you know we had to honor Judy's guitar pick with something but looking at the back cover of that yeah, I mean insane. David Lee Roth in full like they back they then. were all gorgeous and they knew it and they embraced it yeah. so. we, th- that first right. album we talked about this off air we were arguing whether it was the best introduction to a band ever in terms of Gareth you talked about the yeah. first song but listen to the first few Running With The Devil you really got me. Ain't talking about love. I'm the one. Jamie's crying. Jamie's crying. Atomic mm-hmm. punk. Feel your love tonight. That's I the can't first. Wait to feel your that's love the first that's seven awesome. songs of this band's existence. You'd be yeah. like, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. am in. Yeah, Jamie's crying. That was a great song too. I really can't think of another debut. I mean, you could probably go. You probably dig up like a Stones or Beatles album or The Who or something. But like, that's a really spectacular run. Well, yeah. They cranked out so many albums in such a short time, the they Beatles doing, and all them. These guys, I feel like... Well, they did one a yeah. year for yeah. those first six albums, I think, were one each year. I think so, yeah. Because they were supposed to release 1984 on New Year's Eve of going into 1984, and then it got held up for something, and it came out on, like, You know, January because they're Van Halen. 9th, because they're Van Halen, <laughs> like, and they can tell the right. entire industry, they can tell the, Yeah, <gasps> you wait for us, and right. we don't eat brown we'll M&M's. Be, right, right, exactly. We'll be ready in a few days. Um, and they, I think it came out something like January 8th or 9th. But I, I, but I think they were on a one a year, which is a ridiculous pace. I mean, God. Can I actually, uh, I want to make a recommendation to anyone who is 
still listening to this, if you like podcasts, This American Life did an episode that started off a few years ago dissecting Van Halen's contract clause about the brown M&Ms. Famous. And it was it was a famous clause, but there's a lot more that went into that than just sort of like rock They were ego. testing. Weren't they exactly. testing people? Yes. Yeah, it was, like, it was a writer. So I did, right. they were a client. M&Ms was a client of mine um, for, uh, for years, and we actually made up shirts that said absolutely Absolutely no brown M&M's last year when Van Halen um, released a box that we sent it around to various influencers and stuff. Um, because, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a rider. It was a thing in their rider that would be, uh, they were noticing local promoters were not adhering to their safety standards. And if they came in and they saw the M&M's didn't, weren't picked out, they, they, they would instantly know them. they didn't read it very right. closely. Right. Exactly. And um, they said that, because it was the first time they brought like a big arena-sized tour into smaller, more regional like hockey arenas and things like right. that. So, I mean, pretty savvy. That's pretty smart. It's Whoever, very, whatever manager came up with that idea. I, and, so ahead. now we get a legend, but it served a purpose. I mean, that's where Van Halen should live on timeless forever. Timeless. So you have to get going before you do in just not sports. We, we know athletes have to do annoying aptitude tests like the wonder lick. <laughs> so we have the wonder like, which is five questions about the thing that you like. Oh, God. So we've got five bad. questions about Van Halen locked. Are okay. you ready? Uh, sure. Uh, question number one. Eddie Van Halen has a famous guitar model, which takes its name from what movie monster? Frankenstein. That is correct. Yeah. What's it called? What does he call it? The guitar. It? What's yeah. his guitar oh. called? I don't know. It is the, that is the Frankenstrat. Oh. But that was not the question. So you're but one, one for one, one, one for one. I'm impressed. So you knew you knew that you knew Frankenstein. But you didn't know Frankenstrat. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. Does it have Frankenstein on it, or is it just the name? Mm. I only know the one. I only know the Diver Down guitar. No, question number two: How many Van Halen album titles begin with the words Van Halen? <laughs> <laughs> Does that encompass all of them? Like the post David uh, Lee Roth years? Just do the, the Roth years. The first two were Van Halen and then Van Halen 2, creatively enough. Uh, okay, then there was Women and Children First, Fair Warning, Diver Down, 1984. I'm impressed. 5150. But then they had some, comp- they had greatest hits and live and they had the f word album so we'll, right. we'll there's we'll give this to you you had you you nailed it the roth years had two it was two. one and two and then they did put out van halen three in 1998 see but that doesn't i mean does it that does even count, count as right. the same band no is was that when they were with, with david Lee? they must have been well, when he, they were with david Lee roth return right? came back right yeah. and then it sounds like a radio again. host what a life yeah. <laughs> all right two for two because we're not counting the 1998 years in 1984, MTV famously gave away a trip to join Van Halen on tour. That trip was called the Van Halen Blank Weekend. The Lost Weekend? I have yes, no idea. Correct. That, Nailed it. that was, I, oh, I wish, that was I, the Aaron Rodgers throw into the end zone against Arizona. No, of, that was somebody answers. who doesn't know Wait. the answer on a daily double just... Amazing. I don't know, Alex. But it would be lost a Lost Weekend. weekend Absolutely, yeah. Weekend. I mean, Question number four. Van Halen reunited at the 1996 MTV Video Music Awards. I remember that. And David Lee Roth's antics on stage instantly caused another feud. What musician won the award they presented? Oh, God. Oh, I have no idea. (laughs) I do remember watching that show for the reunion because I think everybody thought that was it. They were going to get back together and, oh, it's going to be great and they're going to go forward. And it was a disaster. 
It was Beck. Beck. Beck was on stage, and then for, for people Odele, who didn't remember, was that was it, that, yeah that right? Year? I think it was Odelay because his Metal Gold was like 90, 93, 94, 94 yeah. yeah. So he Roth was just standing on stage and kind of like egging on the crowd who had been so happy they came back in, oh. and and ignoring Beck. Poor Beck. Poor Beck. I think he's. I'm a loser, baby. So I why love don't that you There we go. He's really getting time. into the singing, and we got to wrap it up. <laughs> yep. Uh, the video for question number five. The video for right now is famous for its written messages. The first one is oh right now. Ed is blank. Wow. I don't know. You got me. Playing the piano. You got me, or you, you really, really got, got me. me. <laughs> <laughs> Girl. Girl. And then we have one more question for the Wonderlike that our listeners are dying to know. What is your Van Halen karaoke go to? Oh, I would do Running with the Devil, I think. Okay. I think that's a great dun, dun, dun. Come on, the whole it, crowd would go crazy. The other recommendation have you, if you've never heard the David Lee Roth isolated vocal track of Running with the Devil, it's online. We'll post it. It's unbelievable. It is one of the greatest pieces of audio you'll ever hear. It's just, just, it's just him by himself. It's just him good, by himself good or isolated. Bad. No, it's amazing. Oh. First of all, look, from a, you realize the range of his voice and what he did, but just to hear that stuff isolated. <laughs> and then dead silence for 10 seconds. <laughs> go listen to it. It is spectacular. To paraphrase Jason Manzuka's. David Lee Roth did not just walk in the room. <laughs> it's just a perfect imitation of him. Well, Judy, we can't thank you enough for coming on Just on Sports. This is an interview we've been waiting to do forever. Your passion is unquestioned. Your knowledge, un, un, uh, just unparalleled. Yeah, amazing. We can't wait. I mean, you just rattled off like I all the albums. I can't wait. I love that song too. Uh, I, I you know what? This is really song. sad. Now, if this had just gone for another back. hour, you'd be like, like another hour, you'd be like on the table, just like, <laughs> okay. let's yeah. do it. There's, there was a lot of this. Yeah, a lot of head banging. <laughs> well, thank pumping. you. 